You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I hope you're all staying safe and keeping sane. My conversation today is with neuroscientist Michael Graziano. Dr. Graziano is professor of psychology and neurology at Princeton University, and he has been working on a theory of consciousness for the past 10 years. His theory is called the attention schema theory of consciousness, which takes a brain-based approach to the problem of consciousness. He's written several books describing his theory, but today we discuss his latest book, Rethinking Consciousness. We talk about consciousness, artificial intelligence, simulations, the reality of God, and much more. Dr. Graziano's work has had a huge impact on my thinking during critical periods in my development, um, both intellectually and spiritually, and it was a real honor to get to talk to him. If you're interested in anything that we discuss, please go over to the show notes where I'll have links to all of his work. If you enjoy this interview, please give us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you'd like to reach out, you can find us on Twitter at Pragmatic Christ, and you can follow me at Hayden S. Bruce. You can also email me by going to the contact page on the website, pragmaticchristian.com. I don't want to waste any more time, so thank you all so much for listening. Wash your hands and enjoy the episode. So I've been following your work for... Uh, at least five years. Um, I was quite, I don't, I honestly, I forgot how I came across your work, but I do remember how excited I was when I found it. Um, in our email exchange, I described you, you know, my background coming up in a religious background, going to Bible college. And during that time, having some extreme doubts. And, um, I read your book during a time where, the alternative to religion was atheism and all the atheists that I was hearing um, were very much against religion. You know, the new atheist response to religion. And so, you know, there was something about religion that I still was obviously attracted to and still am. And so it was, it was great to hear your perspective um, that you took in the book that I started with uh, consciousness and the social brain. Um, you de- you spend a couple sections addressing the new atheists, um, not even on their account of consciousness, but just on their account of religion and kind of um, correcting that response. And so I appreciate how um, the humble response that you take, you say that I'm not, you know, that you're an atheist, that you're not apologizing for that, but that you don't take the sort of hard um, oppositional approach that other atheists do. So I really appreciated that. Um, I was also really interested in in your theory of consciousness in general, which we'll get to. But I just wanted to say that up front, that I appreciate your perspective on consciousness, but also on many other things um, as a scientist, as an atheist, and the way that you approach the problems that you do. Um, and be, uh, I'll have a chance to butter your bread all throughout this interview, so I guess we can jump right into it. But you've sure. tried, you've tried, but thanks for that. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for that. You, you've written, um, I think, three books that have been specifically about consciousness. There was a short book about God and, and spirits that was kind of an introduction to your theory, and correct me if yes. I'm wrong, and then you had Consci- Consciousness and the Social Brain, which came out in um, 2013. 
And now yes. you have a new book that came out last year, Rethinking Consciousness, which we're talking about um, now. But before we get into the book and the theory, you're a scientist by trade. A lot of people that write about consciousness are philosophers. Uh, historically, they've been philosophers. You're a scientist by trade. How did you get into what you study? And could you describe what you study? Right. So, yes, I, I'm a neuroscientist. I study the brain. I study the relationship between the brain and thinking the brain and uh, behavior. And um, for a long time, I studied really nuts and bolts issues in neuroscience. I spent many years studying uh, how the brain processes incoming sensory information and also how the brain controls movement. So uh, it turns out that those kinds of nuts and bolts issues um, in neuroscience, the basics of the mechanism of the brain, that, that's actually quite helpful to have studied that in building a theory of consciousness. And these days, for about the past 10 years, my lab has been focused on this question, this larger question of consciousness. We're machines. We're biological machines. Uh, but we go around claiming to have what is essentially a magical essence inside of us. And that's really fascinating. And why is that? Why do we claim that? Uh, presuming that the things we claim about ourselves are not perfectly accurate, uh, what are the inaccuracies? And what's the reality behind the magicalist claims that we make about ourselves? Uh, why would these things have evolved in the first place? What adaptive value do they have? Um, and where in the brain are they represented? What What's the mechanism? These kinds of things. Uh, we're also very interested in how one could build essentially human-like consciousness into artificial devices. And that's, of course, much farther off in the future, but probably not as far off as people think it is. So that's the kind of thing that uh, my, me and, and the people in my lab work on these days mm. well speaking of consciousness um if someone was to dive into the consciousness literature going back you know a couple hundred years uh, depending on you know the words that are being used um people have been trying to figure out consciousness for a while you know back you know back a couple hundred years to descartes uh, but if someone was to start to dive into the literature, um, it would be very easy for them to come out completely baffled, uh, yes. uh, to become a, myst a mysterian, as some people are, you know, describe themselves, where they think that it's just not something, it's a fundamental mystery that we can't figure it out. There's many different um, opposing views, and and you talk about it in your in all your books, Um you talk about the intuitions that we attach to consciousness. Yes. Um, you're just talking about the mad, you know, talking about magic that yes. consciousness brings all these magical and mystical um, intuitions. And so a lot of people today, um, they completely, their eyes glaze over when someone starts talking about consciousness because people start talking about God or spirits or quantum mechanics. Um, you take a much more practical approach, but first of all, could you talk a little bit about the intuitions that uh, we commonly have with consciousness and what you mean by consciousness when you talk about it in your work? Sure. So certainly that word has many different meanings uh, to different people. Everyone has a different concept of that. One of the most common sort of popular notions of consciousness is uh, kind of a, a, you know, the energy-like thing inside of me that can, I don't know, flow and um, 
commune with the universe or whatever it is, the ghost, the, the soul inside of me. Um, and uh, that's actually not what most researchers mean when they use the uh, word consciousness. So one way to put it, one way to explain what people are really focusing in now would go something like this. Imagine the experience of looking at a, a lawn, a green lawn, and you have an experience of greenness. You look at it and you experience the color green. Or imagine getting poked by a pin and you experience pain. Uh, or imagine um, feeling angry and you experience anger. And I could go on with many experiences. Uh, you could experience a memory, thinking about something that happened yesterday. Or you could experience yourself right now as a person. And you could think to yourself, I am who I am and I'm right here. And I um, in somewhere in the trajectory of my life. All of these are different experiences. And now ask, what's similar across them all? Uh, of course, there's lots different. The content is totally different. Some of them, uh, some of those experiences are about really specific external events like color of, of, of something external to you. And some, some of those experiences are about rich internal events like memory and self-knowledge. Uh, so they're very different in content, but there is something common across them all. In each case, there's a subjective experience of something. Uh, sometimes I call it experienceness uh, to abuse the language a little bit. Uh, so they all have some kind of layer uh, of experienceness or some aura of experienceness. What is that? What do you have to add? to the stuff in the brain so that we have a subjective experience of it. So it's not just information. There's a lot of information in the brain that we, we don't experience. I mean, most of what goes on in the brain is outside of conscious experience, but some of it we have a, a subjective experience of it, the, the, the what it feels like component. That's the question people are asking. How do you get that? Uh, even if it's trivial, like a subjective experience of the pain of getting poked by a needle, that's a very low-level kind of experience. How do you get that? Uh, so it's not necessarily these very complex, high-level uh, concepts of self and um, knowledge of self and so on. Uh, um, consciousness research has tended to focus on this question, how do we get subjective experience? Uh, so that's what most of us mean when we're trying to tackle this question. And that formulation of it is actually relatively recent, maybe in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Maybe that's not so recent, <laughs> but somewhere in that time frame, people have really focused in on that part of the question. How does a brain produce a subjective experience? Uh, so that's, that's what I'm talking about. And that's what most of us are talking about when we use that word consciousness. Hmm. Yeah. The common intuition that, that many people have is that there's something that it's like to be a human being. There's something that it's like to um, to be a bat. Uh, there's something that it's like to feel the things that we feel and be aware of the things that we're aware about. Um, and then the question or the real problem that's known as the hard problem of consciousness is how do we get this mental, non-physical uh, experience yes. out of completely uh, material matter and yes. completely material um a uh, deterministic universe. Yes. Um, where does spirit come from, or where does mind come from? Um, you, you. There's also um, 
who coined the hard problem? Was that uh, Chalmers? So I, he certainly popularized it. Okay. And and he's following on the heels of another philosopher, Nagel, who uh, came up with this, what it is like, what it is like to be a bat. That was his famous article. And that's exactly right. So most people are asking, uh, how does a physical thing like a brain produce what is obviously a non-physical essence? And it's non-physical in this very specific sense that what it feels like is not something you can measure physically. You can ask people if they have it, but you can't um, push on it and measure a reaction force, the feeling itself. You can't heat it up and, and measure its combustion temperature. You know, you can't measure physical attributes of it. It's the non-physical, it's, it's, it's not like it's a cloudy ghost. It just doesn't rate on most, on, on physical um, dimensions. It's a non-physical side to what's going on in the head. And mo this is how most people think of it. So how, how do you it's – it's magic, basically. It's non-physical magic. How do you uh, reconcile magic with science? And at its heart, this is the hard problem of consciousness that, uh, uh, yes, David Chalmers uh, really popularized that concept of the, the hard problem. And the hard problem really boils down to magic, uh, whether people realize it or not. A lot of people – uh, probably get annoyed when I uh, accuse them of dealing in magic, but it, it, in effect, that's what's going on. People think of consciousness as a magic, non-physical thing. How do you get magic and mechanism to join? That's very hard to. It's impossible to uh, to figure out. That's the mystery of consciousness. Now, so here's the here's uh, where things begin to break apart in the field of consciousness studies, because there's basically two approaches. And one is what I've talked about, the magicalists, as I call them. Uh, there's a magic non-physical experience. How does the brain produce it or how does the brain host it? But there's another approach which has been growing. Uh, that's a, what I would call the mechanistic approach. And it's, it's fundamentally different. Um, and it goes something like this. Everything that you claim to be true about yourself, everything, no matter what it is, no matter how certain you are that it's actually true, even if you're absolutely certain it's not just a claim, everything you claim to be true about yourself derives from information in the brain, right? Everything. It's, it's, just, it's just logic. A brain can't put out a claim unless it has the information on which the claim is based. Everything. But that information is very unlikely to be perfectly literally accurate. We know that. We know this about the brain, that the brain builds uh, models or bundles of information to describe itself and describe its world, and that information is never literally accurate. And so we now get into this uh, place where we, we have to accept that the claims about consciousness that we make about ourselves we make them because something in us, uh, there's information in us that tells us we have those things. But that information is probably not perfectly accurate. The consciousness we think we have is not the same as the consciousness as, as, as whatever we actually have. The consciousness we think we have is not the same as what we actually have. And that's something that uh, logically has to be true. 
So we get to this point where uh, you don't actually have to explain how the brain produces that magic essence. What you have to explain is how the computing machinery of the brain builds that self-description, mm-hmm. right? The brain builds a, a what's called a model or a bundle of information about itself. That model is not perfectly accurate. It uh, skips on details and it, it, it's a little cartoonish and it takes some shortcuts. Our higher cognition has access to that model and learns stuff about ourselves, which is not perfectly accurate. Speech is influenced by our higher cognition. And so we start making claims about ourselves. And at the end of that whole process, we're talking about the uh, non-physical, what it feels like experience. But that's almost certainly not what's really going on inside of us, Mm. right? So the mechanistic approach says you don't have to explain how the brain produces this magic because it doesn't. There's no magic. What we are are machines that construct imperfect information about ourselves and think things about ourselves that are not perfectly accurate and then make claims about ourselves that are not perfectly accurate. And uh, every step in that process is scientifically understandable, scientifically studyable, and there's uh, no magic and no hard problem at any of those steps along the way. So that's the other, that's the mechanistic approach, which is uh, really beginning to take root, I think, in the field of consciousness studies. Just because I, I'm finally talking to uh, a neuroscientist, um, so especially someone who, who studies um, attention and visual uh, information as well and perception, you, you quote, I think he was a psychologist, um, uh, I think J.J. Gibson, um, yeah, J.J. Gibson, who talks about affordances, yes. how everything in the world... everything that we perceive in the world, um, we look at it trying to predict its behavior so that we know how to use it. Um, I've heard some people, some some psychologists, evolutionary psychologists, who talk about um, our conscious, maybe that's the wrong way to talk about it, but our perception of the world and the objects in the world and even each other, um, that we think of things not as objects in and of themselves, the way they are in reality. We think of things as tools. We don't know we are, but we look at things as um, as things in our environment to navigate, as things with behaviors, uh, tools to be used. Could you comment on that? Do you know what I'm talking about and explain that? Because I've been wanting yeah. to talk to someone who actually knows uh, what they're talking about. Is that true? Is that an approximation or an analogy or is that um, mechanistically true? So, uh, yes, Gibson uh, proposed this idea of affordances and the idea of the, the, the Gibsonian affordance. When you look at something, you don't just, the, the purpose of the brain is not just to give you a, a pretty picture, which is useless for survival. The purpose of the brain is to tell you about what, that object can do for you, or especially what you can do to the object. So the obvious examples, you mentioned tools. If you look at a hammer, you don't just see a funny shaped piece of metal. Uh, You automatically process what you can do to it. So an affordance would be, I can pick it up and whack something with it. Uh, I suppose another affordance would be, I can pick it up and use it as a doorstop, right? So there can be multiple affordances per object. You look at a sandwich and the affordance is I can grab it and put it in my mouth. Uh, He talks about we look at a branch on a tree and and we perceive it one way, but a bird 
looks at a branch on a tree and sees the affordance, I can land on it and grip it with my claws. Uh, so we tend to see the world where the brain is uh, optimized, maybe not optimized, but the brain uh, evolves to better see things for what they can do for us and what we can do to them. So that's the idea of affordances. That's certainly a generally correct uh, proposition. I think it can be taken a little too far um, because you know we do have a kind of general intelligence that's flexible. And so even when you look at a hammer, you don't want to just see one or two uh, purposes for it. You want to have a more general intelligence in case you need to use it for all kinds of weird other purposes. I mean, maybe you want to use it for an anchor or maybe there's you want to use it to do you know as a paperweight or I don't know what you want you want to understand some general properties of the hammer beyond just its immediate affordances mm -hmm. but affordances definitely play a huge role in how the brain is organized so that's been around since the 1960s since Gibson made those proposals okay so it sounds like Gibson's affordances were a little a little more narrow than what you were just describing that um, and I was interested in it and you were talking about your qualifier was exactly what I was wanting to um, to ask you about because um, at least coming from a pragmatic philosophical pragmatism that is a pragmatic um, perspective um, uh, Charles Peirce and William James they saw um, they saw objects as things with habits that was their way of describing like what a thing means what it pragmatically means to us is everything that it does everything that it tends to do its habits in in this language its affordances um, in a very broad way that we that a hammer isn't just for striking nails like you just said it can be used for all these different things and so what I want to ask you as a neuroscientist and also as someone who's looked at the evolutionary literature um, like how we perceive the world is it this functional way where we're always we're always predicting and simulating how things can be used um, for survival in our life we don't even think about it in survivalist terms but do we look at every object? Do we think of each other and everything in our environment as our in our environment as something to navigate? Is something with affordances in a broad way, or habits, or consequences in a pragmatic way? I just want to ask ask you to because I've I've heard people talk about you know make a whole theory about it and talk about it from a neuroscientific perspective, and I didn't know if this was just the way they were describing it or an analogy, or if this is, um, if this is true, this is the way that we perceive our environments. I think that the ultimate purpose of the brain is movement. Uh, it's there to control movement. And so the ultimate purpose of encoding an object, when you look at it or hear it or whatever the sense, uh, um, input is the ultimate purpose is movement is physical interaction with the world. And so no matter what it is you look at, there's always a part of your brain that's uh, working out how you would reach out and grab it. Uh, and perhaps part of our understanding of three-dimensional structure is uh, understanding how to shape your hand to grab onto it. Uh, uh, and I think that's something we're always doing, whether we realize it or not. That doesn't mean, however, that everything going on in the brain is... Uh, of direct immediate um, use for movement control. There's a lot of stuff going on that's not directly connected to movement control. And I guess the point is uh, that's a that's a good thing, right? We it would be very it, it, we would be very uh, stereotyped 
creatures, very unintelligent creatures. If we were simply a set of lookup tables, this object leads to this behavior, right? We need some more general representation of the object so that we can build more flexible behavior around it or choose not to behave or remember it for later in case we want to use it to help guide our choices later. Uh, so we, we, we are not creatures that are solely input-output creatures, uh, but we certainly, uh, you know, the brain evolved ultimately as a movement controller. There's a, a there's an, an um, wonderful example of I think it's the sea squirt as an example of why the brain is really for the purpose of movement. So the sea squirt is an animal that uh, is born and it goes through two phases of its existence. And in phase one, it has a brain and it moves around and it hunts and it eats little microscopic creatures. And then in phase two of its existence, it anchors on a rock and it becomes a filter feeder, passive filter feeder. And it's not moving around its environment anymore. And it doesn't need a brain anymore. And to save energy, it digests its own brain. And, uh, and so you need a brain for movement. It's also been said that the sea squirt is a wonderful um, it, uh, um, analogy to academic tenure. But uh, anyway, uh, the, 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 we, we do have a brain for the purpose of movement. And if you're not going to move around a whole lot, you don't need a brain. Uh, so in a sense, in an overarching sense, the idea of affordances, Gibson's affordances is absolutely valid. But you don't want to take it too far. We're not just simple input-output lookup tables. Mm. Well, speaking of movement and tracking movement, um, you say that the key to your um, – I, I don't even know if I mentioned what it was called, the attention schema theory of consciousness. The key to it is attention, and we were just talking about tracking movement. Um, could you describe what you mean by attention? Let's just kind of get some of the, the terms down because you use it in a way that other people – you know, like consciousness – People use them in different ways. What do you mean by That's attention? Right. right. I hate the word attention, but I use it anyway. <laughs> it's part of your theory. I don't know, <laughs> right. I don't know what other word to use. Uh, the word attention has so many colloquial meanings that it's uh, hard to sort of get, you know, pin it down and different people mean different things by it. Even scientifically, when you look at different groups of scientists, they use the word sometimes in very different ways, which I find uh, disconcerting, uh, but that's what it is. So I'll tell you what I mean. First of all, too many signals come in for the brain to process all at once uh, uh, in any kind of thorough or in-depth way. So there has to be some uh, paring down or uh, some prioritization. And the way that works is by competition. And Nervous systems are organized in this way across the entire evolutionary uh, uh, um, scale uh, from, you know, the earliest creatures that had uh, nervous systems uh, uh, up to the very complex nervous systems of, of uh, mammals. Uh, what you see is signals compete with each other. They're, they're uh, basically uh, um, butting against each other. And some signals win the competition and grow stronger and other signals lose and get squashed down. Uh, and that comp competition is constant. It's happening at many, many stages throughout the processing in the brain from the very beginning, from the very sensory input end already signals are competing and fighting with each other. I think in my book, I compare it to uh, the NFL and uh, 
teams, you know, compete. And eventually, uh, after many levels of competition, only one of them wins. And that's like the Super Bowl in the brain. And that's the one thing that you're paying most attention to. That's the, that's the, the signal or the part of your world, whether external or internal, some part of your world wins the competition and you process it in great depth. Uh, so many more resources are put on it. Uh, the information is processed in greater depth. You understand what it is better. You um, can react to it better. You can remember it better. Uh, and it can influence many more uh, output systems. So it hooks up to many things like your speech or your memory system or your emotional system or your ability to move your arms and hands. Uh, uh, so whatever that piece, whatever that item is that's won the competition is uh, processed in depth and able to influence your your uh, behavior. And that's attention. So uh, that's what I'm talking about by attention. It's, it, you, you could call it deep processing. Maybe that's a better word for it, deep processing. So everything in our environment is potentially important uh, for our life, for our survival. And so yes. everything, every um, input or or stimulus is competing for our attention. And then there's a competition in our nervous system for what to attend to. That's the competition that yes. you're talking about. Um, yes. that, that's something that animals, that all animals do. Um, yes. So perhaps we can get, so perhaps you could describe what your attention schema theory is, and then we can kind of work out some of the details uh, between the kind of awareness that an animal has and the awareness that we have. Um, the differences, but describe now that we know what attention is, um, what is your attention schema theory of consciousness? So yes, attention is deep processing of some things at the expense of other things. That's the core of what attention is. And yes, most animals have some version of attention, some very simple, some much more complicated mammals, very rich and complex attention. Um, attention is something that can move around the world. So our attention can drift or we can uh, force it to move from item to item. Uh, sometimes we're attending inward. Like I can be reading a book, but I'm thinking about what happened yesterday or I'm imagining something about myself. And then the next moment, my attention gets uh, snagged by some sounds in the yard behind me. And then the next moment, that focus of processing can move back to the book in front of my eyes. That constantly shifting uh, focus, that's attention. Um, and for years, for more than a century, actually, uh, psychologists have noted a, a, um, a similarity, a, a kind of uh, a link between attention and conscious awareness. What you attend to you're usually aware of. In fact, most people think those two are synonymous. You know, if I'm really attending to something, it means I'm conscious of it and aware of it. And if I'm really not attending to it at all, like none of my uh, processing resources are directed to it, then heck, I'm not aware of it. All the way back to the uh, 1800s even with um, uh, um, William James writing about attention and uh, consciousness, he conflates the two. He talks about attention is the focus of our consciousness. Uh, I got the words not perfectly right, but he, he conflates those two concepts. 
Uh, and that's something that people have noted all the way through, that what we attend to is what we're conscious of. And that's that's part of where this uh, very common idea came from, that a consciousness is just something that happens when a brain deeply processes something. You just become conscious of it. That's it. Uh, but something very interesting happened in about the last 30 years. It was discovered that attention and uh, consciousness, subjective awareness, are not the same, and they can be separated. A rare, it's a very rare circumstance, and you have to do some work in the lab to get them to separate. But you can actually have people paying attention to something in the sense that they're brains are focusing resources on it. But the person says, I didn't see anything. I'm not conscious of it. Right. So you can separate them. Uh, it's very, very interesting. You have to get the uh, visual inputs at a kind of a thresholds level and they're a little fuzzy and they're hard to see or stimuli are flashed really briefly. Uh, and there's a number of other things you can do, but you can actually separate attention and awareness. And so now there's this question that has been hovering over people this uh, whole past three decades. What is the relationship between attending to something, meaning focusing your neural processing power on it, versus being subjectively aware of it? What's the relationship between those two? Uh, and that's what this attention schema theory addresses. What is the relationship between those two? And so what we say is you really have this, sure, you have attention, ability to focus, a deep processing maybe I should just call it. Your neural circuits can deeply process something. But in addition to that, the brain also builds a model. Uh, I keep throwing this word model around. I mean the brain builds a bundle of information to describe to itself what it's doing. And that bundle of information tells the brain, right now, I have a mental possession of that object. I mentally experience or grasp that object. Right? The brain builds that information, that, that um, uh, bundle of information is a, a model of attention in the sense it's a description of the brain's own attention. And, um, and that description is usually pretty good. It's pretty accurate. And that's why most of the time when you attend to something, you're also able to say, yes, uh, my brain has possession of that. My mind has possession of that. I'm aware of it. I'm su subjectively aware of it. That's why awareness and attention tend to track each other. But sometimes that, um, that model of attention, the brain's description of what it's doing can be inaccurate. The brain's uh, models are never perfect. They're always a little bit, uh, um, uh, they miss some of the details, they can make mistakes. Uh, and this is why you sometimes have that dissociation where you're attending to something, but the brain in effect doesn't know it. The brain's description, self-description of what it's doing has made a mistake. And then you say, well, I'm not aware of it. And so the core of this uh, idea, the core of this theory is very, very simple, that what we call awareness, subjective awareness, is the brain's way of understanding what it's doing when it's 
attending or focusing resources on something. In a nutshell, that's the theory. Yeah. Um, so the perfect example of the split between attention and awareness is, um, you know, driving on the freeway and have it being daydreaming and not even knowing how you got home. Um, you wouldn't be able to do that if you hadn't driven home on that path multiple times before. And so in a way we build habits, um, and we are through our life, we're attending to certain things. And if we do that enough times, um, we kind of, you can correct if the way I'm talking about this is wrong, but do we construct a model of our environment, um, as we live through it, as we operate in it. And so we build habits of navigating so that we can put our awareness on other things than what we are, you know, attending to. Yes. So that's exactly right. So yes, the brain builds models of everything. The brain's a model builder. Everything out there, we build models of. Everything that we know about inside of us, we've built models of. The brain's a model builder. Uh, and it, and the, the key here is to understand the difference between the model and the thing it's modeling. They're always different. They're always different. Uh, so yes, the brain builds models of it, the spatial world around it. People have studied that. There's a part of the brain called the hippocampus that contains spatial maps. It's quite a remarkable structure. Uh, apparently, it, it's a lot larger in taxi drivers <laughs> because they have so much experience in um, navigating streets. They build vast um, spatial maps of uh, streets that they're driving through. So, yes, the brain builds spatial models. Uh, the brain builds models of the body. The brain builds models of the world around us uh, constantly. And the brain builds models of itself and its own internal processes. And everything we know about the world depends on those models. And the models are never really perfectly accurate. They have to be shortcuts. Otherwise, we'd need a brain the size of a planet uh, to compute all the information. So, uh, yes, there is something called automization. Uh, so you can uh, automatize some of the things you're doing which means you don't need um, attention. You don't need high-level attention on them. And you can do them with, with uh, well, automaticity. That's where that's the, why it's called that. Uh, and so when that happens, you can do quite elaborate, complex things without the attention on it and without the awareness on it. And that's exactly right. That's one of the uh, circumstances where we see the brain performing all kinds of processes, but our awareness is not on it. And to some extent, our attention is not on it either. I mean, the whole point of automatization is that you can put your attention, your focus on something else uh, and use all the uh, the neural resources to figure something else out mm. while the simpler um, automatic task is, is being performed. So it's very – so what consciousness is then is the model of – you described it. Consciousness is uh, not an illusion, not a story. It's a model of attention. It's a model like the way that we build models of everything, but it's a model for attention. Um, could you just kind of talk about what that means? Because I feel like until you really, until you you know, read your theory and your book a couple times, at first it seems really unintuitive, obviously, and it seems kind of weird. It's simple after you actually understand it. But but could you describe what 
consciousness is then? Because I can hear someone asking, well, then what is consciousness then? What is this awareness? I feel like a self. I feel like a person. Uh, I feel like there's something in my head. So what is that? What is it like to feel me? It's a model, but could you describe what that means? Yes, you're right. It's very non-intuitive. And that's kind of the point of it because our intuitions are always based on our higher cognition accessing deeper information. And so we're captive to that deeper information. And part of the point of this theory is don't quite trust that deeper information. It's pretty good, but it's not perfectly accurate. And so uh, necessarily this theory is a little bit non-intuitive. Right. So what is consciousness? Uh, Is it an illusion? I always say no. I can't stand that term illusion. Uh, The people who say consciousness is an illusion, I think I probably agree with a lot of what they say, but I don't like the word. I think the word does a disservice. Mm -hmm. There are – so I'll give you an analogy first. I often use the analogy of the body and the body schema. So you have a physical body. And the brain constructs something called a body schema, which is a model or simulation of your body. And to be more specific, you have an arm, a physical arm, and you have a model of the arm that allows the brain to keep track of your arm. And if you close your eyes so you don't get any visual feedback, you still know about your arm, where it is and what its configuration is and the fact that your elbow can bend in certain ways and so on. You know all about the shape and structure of your arm because you have an arm model in your head. And one of the best ways to demonstrate that is to look at people who are amputees. Your arm is gone, but many of them still have the arm model in their brain. That's a phantom limb, right? They still have a limb in a sense. Their brain is telling them the limb is still there and it has a a shape and a structure and it's doing certain things or it's in a certain position. But Physically, there actually is no limb. So that really shows you the distinction between the model and the thing it's modeling. Uh, And uh, one point I would make is if you have a phantom limb, it's an illusion. There's no actual limb. But for the rest of us, it's not an illusion because we actually have a limb. We have a model of a limb. And we have a real limb, and the model corresponds to the real limb. So let's not call it an illusion. There's something real there that's being modeled. Uh, And if the only thing you knew about arms was the model, like you you never dissected arms and uh, uh, medical science never studied actual physical limbs, if if you imagine a state like that, if we knew nothing about our arms except what the arm schema tells us, we would think we had a magic appendage because the arm schema says nothing about the uh, mechanism, the bone structure and the muscles. It's, it says nothing about that. It just says there's this thing that has a surface structure and that can move because we will it to move. Uh, and there's no mechanism behind it, right? That's magic. We would go around thinking we had magic in us. Uh, and in, in a sense, People, uh, before they understood what a phantom limb was, thought that that was magic, right? I mean, uh, Lord Nelson, who lost his arm, uh, famously said, I can prove that ghosts exist because if my arm has a ghost, 
then the rest of the body can have a ghost too, right? So the arm schema, if you took it literally, would make you think you have a magical body. Now, let's take the same concept and apply it not to a body part, but to what's going on inside your head. So the idea here is the brain has an ability to focus its resources and deeply process something. 86 billion neurons in the brain, supposedly about that many, are processing away and focusing the resources on, on something in particular. Uh, now, that's what's really happening. That's like your real arm. That's the real physical thing. In addition to that, the brain builds a nice, simple, cartoonish model of what it's doing. So the brain can keep track and have some notion of what's going on inside itself. And in that simple cartoonish model, the brain says nothing about neurons, nothing about complicated signals interacting with each other. Instead, the brain says, oh, I have a non-physical subjective experience, right? So get that difference between the reality, which says billions of neurons focusing the resources on something and processing it in great depth. Like we have that, that's real. We are in that sense, we are conscious of things. That's what consciousness is. But we also have the brain's cartoon model of what it's doing. And in that cartoon model, what we're doing is a little bit magical, right? So one way to try to put that is, Consciousness has many different components to it. Some are more mechanistic and easier to understand. The uh, particular uh, sensory information and the particular thoughts and, the, and so on, the memories, we have some notion how the mechanism works. But some components of consciousness are more magical. And uh, the point here is the, the, we think we have magic because that's the brain's easy, simple way for it to understand what it's doing. Mm -hmm. So that's the relationship between uh, what we really have and what this model tells us we have. Mm. So the feeling of being aware of something that I am aware of, um, of my computer in front of me, it's this model that, that I have access to that is, um, is it, is the right way to say it that it's controlling um, attention or that it's it's tracking attention? That it's tracking. Okay, tracking. So it's a tracking. It's attention. telling. Yes, the model is telling you there is such a thing as a feeling, mm. and you have it, and it's doing that because that's a pretty it's a pretty good, simple, quick and dirty way of uh, describing what it means to focus attention on something. Just like the bo the body scheme is tracking everything that's happening through the yes. lens, even though it doesn't have direct access to the neurons, to all the mechanisms, it's it's tracking the movement of the body, and so we have a feeling of our own body and a, an awareness of our own body, but it's our body schema um, tracking all the different components. The body schema, yes, contains information about the body, what the body is doing. It's tracking the body. Mm. Uh, the these this this. Uh, self model the brain self model is tracking what the brain itself is doing right mm -hmm. and everything we know about ourselves comes from these models so when we start saying oh but i have a feeling i have the inner feeling the reason why we say that is because those models are telling us that we have a feeling mm. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to say that. Right. And so the upshot of this of this theory is that we um, do not have consciousness. Our brain consciousness is something that we assign or attribute to ourselves, but it's also something that we assign or attribute to others. Um, your first major book uh, describing your theory was called Consciousness and the Social Brain. What's the social yes. uh, the social aspect of this theory? One of the ways that people use consciousness, so almost everyone who studies it is concerned about how I am conscious. But one of the main ways that people use consciousness is in understanding how you are conscious. So we attribute consciousness to other people. We attribute a, a, a conscious mind to other people. And, and, and we're, we, we're masters of this. We do this at the drop of a hat. We attribute consciousness to everything. Uh, some people swear that their house plants are conscious. And, you know, I get mad at my computer when it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, we see consciousness in the spaces around us. We see consciousness in totally inanimate things. We see consciousness in uh, the world in general. We're, we're uh, attributing mind states to the things around us. And we do that because we're social animals. We evolved this incredibly powerful social machinery. We, uh, we do that because it's incredibly adaptive. That's the root of our success as a species is this social cooperation and this ability essentially to intuit that other people have minds and to figure out what might be in those minds. And in that way, not only predict their behavior, but figure out a dance between us and other people, a cooperative dance. And so this extraordinary ability that we have to attribute consciousness to others, this is built into us by evolution is deep in us. Uh, we attribute consciousness to others. And we find that the same networks in the brain, at least uh, extensively overlapping networks, are involved in attributing uh, conscious states to others as are used in um, building our own construct of consciousness. So, uh, yeah, there's a commonality there. And, and uh, I suspect that we evolved, if you look through the whole course of evolution, that we probably evolved our self-models first. And then at some point, evolution um, uh, adapted those models to uh, understand, to track other people as well. Uh, but it's a, it's a similar machinery. We attribute consciousness to others. We almost feel like there's a, an awareness emanating from others. And that's down to our uh, social machinery, building these nice, simple, cartoonish models of what it means for a brain to process something in depth. Yeah, I've heard you say that before that you were agnostic on whether uh, we became conscious of ourselves first or others and then assigned it to ourselves or the other way around. Um, other uh, Joe Henrik, who is a evolutionary anthropologist, psychologist, um, he he does he his work on culture and the, and the building up of culture and um he he describes basically the the that we assign that we track each other's behavior um and then similar i think Susan Blackburn as as well um uh, talks about memes and that it's it's our ability to watch each other and predict each other's behavior that eventually we we turned around and assigned to ourselves do you think that it, that we um that it developed in ourselves first and then we assigned it to others 
I think it must be a two-way street. Yeah. But self-models are really basic. They're really fundamental. Uh, you can't even move without a model of your own body. You can't do anything without a self-model. This is very basic engineering. Uh, pe people uh, know it as control engineering. Uh, in order to have a system that controls something, it needs a model of the thing it's controlling. Uh, so an insect has some kind of self-model at a very simple level, like everything does, a worm does. So self-models had to come first. Mm. At some point, uh, uh, the ability to model others began to come in. And now you can have an interplay because if you evolve a really good way or a good trick for modeling other people, maybe that same trick could be used on yourself. And then as you improve your self-models, maybe the same machinery can then be used to help model others. And it goes back and forth and the thing kind of pulls itself up by the bootstraps and you start getting more and more sophisticated models of minds or theory of mind as, as sometimes people people talk about it mm. uh, but at the at the heart of what uh, I'm saying at the heart of what my lab is saying is theory of mind or, or the ability to understand minds is what we do to other people and to ourselves and what we call consciousness is theory of mind mm. so what our are assigning uh, consciousness to others is technically the same thing, the same information that we are assigning to ourselves, that there's no fundamental or ontological difference, right? It's, it, it's, that's right. It's, it's, it's uh, similar, but, of course, the source of information is different. Right, right. I mean, you get much less information on another person. You don't have internal information on the other person. Uh, the kinds of cues you get, like uh, you see – where someone's eyes are pointing and that helps inform you of how alert they are and what they're aware of. Uh, you don't see your own eyes. And so uh, there's a, there's a, there's definitely a, a gap between what you do for others and what you do for yourself. But there is a, a, a fundamental similarity and the brain networks seem to have this enormous amount of overlap. Mm. Something that I want to ask you in, in, um, in the social brain book, um, in this book, you downplayed something, or it seemed like you downplayed something that was more uh, present in the last book, in, the, in Consciousness and the Social Brain, the idea that the attention schema is something that develops. I want to ask you about how it develops in individuals, not evolutionarily-wise, but how it, it – it, could you describe it as something that is always updating itself, that's always – that's changing? At least I got the, yes. that, that sense from the last book. You didn't talk too much about that in the newest book, but I wanted to have you clarify that. Is it something that is constructing and reconstructing as an individual goes on in their life? Yes, I would think so. Uh, uh, so I, I spent 20 years studying the body schema as I was just uh, mentioning to you, the body schema, phantom limbs, and so on. So the body schema is an example of a, a model the brain constructs that's always being rebuilt because the body is always changing. You're, uh, you grow up and the size and shape of your body changes and your joints change in stiffness and maybe you lose a limb if you're very unfortunate. And the body scheme is constantly updating. Uh, and of course, it's updating second by second because the your limbs are moving into different positions. Exactly the same kind of thing I imagine happening with an attention schema. Your ability to pay attention, 
your ability to manipulate your attention changes. Uh, and of course, the specific state of your attention is constantly changing moment by moment. And so something that's monitoring that, that's constructing a picture of that is always changing, always updating. Some of those changes are slow, long-term changes. Some of those changes are rapid second by second changes. But I would imagine that that's uh, constantly changing. Yes. Because mm. in your books, you, you in, in past interviews, you say that what, what you're working on and what your theory is about is what consciousness technically is. That it's this, this information, this, this scheme or this model, and that it's not so much about the content of consciousness or the content yes. of experience. But on, it, with what we were just talking about with the development and the updating – um, the content of ex of experience or consciousness does affect that that the model and the way that it updates. Correct? Yeah, sure. It would influence, uh, but it. sure, it, yes. I mean, to go back to the body schema example, yeah. uh, you can grasp all kinds of things with your hand. Mm -hmm. You can grasp coffee cups and sandwiches and baseballs, and I don't know. That's like the content of what your hand grabs. Uh, but you also have a model of the hand itself, independent of what it's grasping. Uh, but the two interact, of course, and the shape of your hand depends on what you're grasping. And if you uh, constantly grasp heavy things all the time and pick them up, it'll change the state of your limb and strengthen the muscles, and you'll need to update the model of your limb and your hand. So there's a constant interaction there. But you're right. I think there is a distinction between the content uh, and, uh, of what you are conscious of and the process of being conscious of it. Uh, and th those two can be thought of to some extent separately. Mm. I wanted to ask you about um, how, how you think about personhood or agency or selfhood. How, what, because in a way, the self, you know, especially on, under this kind of um, model uh, of the way you're thinking about consciousness, the self is probably a model as well, something that, that we construct. Yep. But how, how, do you, how is selfhood related to consciousness in this technical way? Are, are they related or do you think that the self is, has to do with other parts of the brain, other mechanisms of the brain? How do you think about that? I think that part of, of self is, is content, conscious content, right? So I can be conscious of something external to me that has nothing to do with me. In fact, there are times when I forget that I'm here and I'm completely absorbed in what's external to me. Uh, maybe I'm watching a movie and I forget that I'm in the movie theater and I'm totally drawn into the stuff on the screen and I'm conscious of it, not of me. There are other moments when I'm conscious of me, of myself as a person, so personhood and my trajectory through life and my memories and my uh, understanding of my own personality, my construct of self. I can be conscious of that as well. So a lot of what people think of as personhood is content, specific, fairly high-level content of which you can be conscious at times. Sometimes you're not conscious of it. So uh, I do draw a distinction between what people sometimes call self-consciousness, but what I really think of as self-knowledge, right? Self-knowledge is, is uh, all that information about yourself uh, that kind of defines for you who you are. And the distinction, what, one way to put the distinction is people know how to build computers that contain self-knowledge. Actually, you can put in all the self-knowledge you want in a computer. Like a computer, in a sense, knows, I mean, it has information on 
itself, its size, where it is, uh, what its speed, processing speed is, all kinds of things about itself. Uh, so you can, we, we know how to build machines that have self-knowledge, but that's not the same thing as being conscious of that self-knowledge, right? The process of being conscious is this uh, extra piece. Uh, so I would draw a distinction between uh, your self-concept or your self-image and consciousness. I think those are two different things. Mm. Where do you think that the the because for me and I and I uh, suspect that others would agree or feel the same way. You know, for me, I'm Hayden. What it is like to be me specifically, like you said, has much to do with my history, with my memory, um, the content of my experience, my body. All these different things are influencing yes. my self concept. Um, but it does seem the way that you talk about consciousness as a model, it seems like it's a unified thing. Do you think that consciousness is, is making that happen on your understanding? Or do you think that there might be another model or another bundle of information that is constructing and reconstructing or like, I'm asking where that illusion comes from. Cause it seems like there's a self and that's usually what people, like you said, are, um, uh, are mixing in with what they understand consciousness to be. Oh, that's me. That's, that's, that's who I am. That's myself there's a little person in my brain or a substance there's a soul um you're you're separating these things but i'm just interested on do you think that the self and what it is like for me to do you think it's just a combination or a you know a complexity argument of all the content mixing together and it's just an illusion i wonder if that illusion is a model the same way that consciousness is even though they're not the same thing well i think you right i think you do have a self model mm -hmm. and it's very rich and it's very complex and it probably spans many brain areas uh, so yes, you do have a self model. Uh, and again, I'm always leery of the term illusion because you, you do have a self, like there's a literal real you a self. There's a, there's a, a, an object, a person, and you have done things in your life uh, and you have a self model, which is probably fairly close to the actual self. Uh, some people's self-models are not so close to their selves and, you know, they think that they're heroes and they're not, or they think whatever they think about themselves and they're not what they actually think. But for the most part, uh, people's self-models have some relationship to the re real self. Uh, so, of course, the model's never perfectly accurate, uh, but um, I always hesitate calling it an illusion because there is a real object there. Uh, but what you know about yourself is uh, ultimately dependent on that model that your brain constructs. Now, to have a model of yourself, there's also something in you, a model that says, and I have a subjective experience of it, right? Not just there's an object here that's six feet tall and has this kind of hair and has done this in the past and is a nice guy or whatever the information is. But on top of that, and or woven into that and there's a subjective experience of that stuff right and so it's that subjective experience component that really interests us uh, so that's the consciousness component like what's the bundle of information in your brain telling you and there's a subjective experience uh, and that part we think is very unifying because it's uh, relevant to everything it's relevant to your self model but it's also relevant to your brain's models of the outside world. It's relevant to every model your brain constructs. Uh, there's always this possibility of attaching it to this extra piece of information that says, 
and there's subjective experience. Mm. So there is something fundamentally unifying about um, about consciousness. Yeah, yeah, it's important to to know what what the self is, what consciousness is, what's the difference, because. Um, as you write about in your book, you you talk about um, you know uploading minds into machines or or simulations and all these things, and we don't if we don't know because that's the, that's the fundamental issue that people are worried about when it comes to these things is will will the me will I be there will I be uploaded like what is what is the I or the me that's being uploaded, yeah. um, you know uh, you talk about. Uh, simulation and uploading minds you you say that it's probably inevitable um what what would be involved in this in this issue yes i think uploading minds is inevitable uh i think the first step which is much uh, closer to realization is artificial consciousness so building computers that have essentially a human-like consciousness they think of themselves as conscious beings and they can think of others as conscious beings. So that's coming, and people are working hard on that, and the rate of progress on artificial intelligence is ridiculous and beyond what most people can even grasp. And uh, uh, so expect that <laughs> in our lifetimes. Uh, that'll happen. But the, the much more challenging um, goal would be uploading minds of biological people so a normal person grows up you know and has a brain and a, and a mind and an experience can you uh scan or read the brain in sufficient detail to simulate it or duplicate it in uh artificial hardware and recreate that mind and uh the answer to that i'm sure is yes there's nothing there's no physical principle that stands in the way of it but it's a really, really hard task to do. <laughs> and the hardest part of it all is scanning a brain in sufficient detail to be able to capture the, uh, uh, the requisite information. That's really hard to do. And there is no modern technology that is up to that task. Now, uh, I'm sure the technology will be invented. Um, these things happen. Uh, I, uh, w one of the examples, one of the analogies I give is <clears throat> almost exactly a hundred years ago, a little more than a hundred years ago, Albert Einstein predicted gravity waves. And he said, uh, this is cool, but it will never be, well, I doubt he used the word cool, but <laughs> in effect, he said, this is cool, but it will never, ever be measured. It will forever be a hypothesis because the magnitude of the shift that you would have to see, the wiggle is uh, thousands of times smaller than the nucleus of an atom. Like that's how tiny it is. It's not ever measurable. Well, a hundred years later, it's been measured. Yeah. Machines have been built. There you have it. So technology moves forward and things that seem absurdly impossible uh, are suddenly doable. And scanning a brain in sufficient detail to simulate it doesn't even seem absurdly impossible right now because people are beginning to do little tiny bits of brains or little tiny brains like uh, fruit fly brains uh, or, um, you know, the brains of uh, round worms. Like the, 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 the technology is, it, it is, is in a fledgling stage, but it's not even impossible to imagine. So I'm sure that eventually we will get to this point. Uh, and people have trouble 
if you if you look at it's I, I find it instructive to look at science fiction. So you look at the science fiction of mind uploading, uh, just to give an example that everyone knows, and that's um, you know ancient history now. Tron, you know, that was one of the first really popular examples of how a person's mind got uploaded into a machine in Tron. Uh, in science fiction, because people can't grasp the implications, you have to simplify it so that people can digest it, so your audience can digest it. And in Tron and all, all these other examples, when your mind gets uploaded, it disappears from your biological body because there's only one mind, I guess, because you know the idea of a, of a soul or a spirit, if it leaves you, then it's not in your body anymore. It's in the machine. But that's not how this would work, right? It would be a duplication. There would be two of you. Both would be absolutely convinced they're you. And both would have a real conscious experience the same way that you do. This duplicate mind would as well. Then you can argue over who's the real one. I don't know who would win that argument. I mean, maybe you, you, you both win or... Probably the um, the simulated one gets the last laugh because it can live indefinitely, and the biological one will die eventually. Mm. Yeah, you you talk you you um you kind of you lay out some of these scenarios, and I'm interested in the ethics of it all. Um, on on I, you know on the journey up to that point, um, you talk about it a little bit in in the book. Um, you know, just taking artificial consciousness or artificial intelligence first. Um, Ex Machina is a good example of, um, you know, when the protagonist realizes that, you know, the mad scientist has been killing off, you know, approximate, you know, models, you know, on the way there, you know, they basically have a sort of consciousness and then you just shut them down. You're, you're essentially killing them off. And I'm worried about the ethics of that because before we ever get there, we're going to create partially conscious people or, you know, when it comes to technology and Silicon Valley and, and, and engineers, they want the perfect thing and they're not going to stop until they get the perfect thing. Well, imagine if they create, um, you know, an artificial intelligence that is almost there, but is approximately someone with some kind of, you know, someone with a... Um, with a mental disability, someone with Down syndrome is the approximate analogy. Are they just going to shut it down? Like today, we we've evolved to have norms for people who are who are disabled, but we're not going to have those same norms with machines. How like how do we think? Because you have thought through some of the ethics, but it's a really difficult problem. You say it's inevitable, but should it be? Should we stop ourselves? Uh, is it is it fundamentally unethical to get to that point? Because evolution created us. But evolution is not a person who has to worry about ethics. We all die on the on the you know in the journey to the next model of human beings. But you know we are you know we're already there. What do you think? <laughs> right. Yeah. I I think it's a ethical quagmire. Uh, <laughs> to put I it lightly. <laughs> yes. I think all kinds of really unethical, bizarre stuff is going to happen. Oh, and I think our whole, whole concept of what it means to be human, our, our civilization, our species is going to change in some pretty radical ways. Uh, and I think this is the probably the biggest transition in our history as a species, the creation of uh, machines that can think that are potentially trillions of times smarter than people are. So yes, 
the, the ethical considerations are enormous. Uh, I think that in order to get there, yes, uh, conscious machines will be killed <laughs> left and right, like Grim Reaper style. Uh, I think that uploading minds when we ever get there, the same thing will happen. You'll upload a mind. This person who is a real person will be instantiated in some second form, but it won't be quite right. And what kind of horrible suffering will that mind be in? And then the operator will say, oops, and then delete it and then try another one. You know, like you don't want to be an early adopter on that one <laughs> uh, because it'll be it'll be a pretty awful experience. Uh, we already know uh, from medical science, medical neurology, that very subtle changes in the brain, in brain chemistry, can lead to profound uh, disturbances. I mean, psychosis or neurosis or terrible anxiety. So imagine trying to recreate someone's mind in uh, um, a simulated format and find out that you didn't do it quite right. And now a kind of horrible uh, mental state is that recreation I mean, the the ethical considerations are just shocking, uh, and they go way beyond the the standard kind of trite uh, worry that oh, the machines will rise up and take over the world. Uh, actually, I think that's a little silly. The machines can uh, the pe people think a conscious machine is a machine with autonomy that can have its own agenda and act uh, in its own self interest. But the problem is. Machines can already do that. They don't need consciousness to do any of those things. Uh, in fact, it may be that giving machines consciousness can give them a little bit of pro-social thinking. Because if they understand what consciousness is, if they understand they have it and other people have it, that's the ground, uh, the um, groundwork. That's the that's the basis on which people are pro-social. Maybe it would be like. Uh, building machines that aren't quite so sociopathic, uh, but uh, so the 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 ethical considerations are murky at best, and it's going to be quite a ride. It'll be a while. It's not like tomorrow, <laughs> but um, uh, I I always say that I'm glad I'll be dead before uh, my. <laughs> Mind uploading comes around because right. it's a little hard for me to imagine that's a good thing, but it's inevitable. That's what I think. It's inevitable. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you writing about it. Um, I wanted to ask you if you thought the scientists have an obligation or should have an obligation to talk about these things, um, because you know, in popular popular um, culture, people who like science or who even love science, scientists themselves. They are very much, you know, for a sort of um, uh, objectivity and normativity split, you know, the fact value dichotomy where the truth is all that matters. The truth is our ultimate and highest norm. Um, I think that we might, you know, especially considering this problem of artificial intelligence and consciousness and, and simulations and things like that, uh, I think we might need a higher norm. Truth can't be the, the absolute highest thing where it's like, well, we're just gonna, it's all about discovery. We're going to just see where things go, you know, and work out the implications later. There has to be a little bit more wisdom about that. Would you agree with that? How would, I know that you are all, that you're a scientist. How would you think about that? Uh, I guess I'm of two minds with that. I mean, sure, it's good to be wise and, and careful. Uh, part of me is a little pessimistic because I think that there are always people who are unwise and uncareful, and they're going to drive the um, the curve on this. 
I mean, the motivation to create a super artificial intelligence and the motivation ultimately to upload minds is incredible. People do, people want that because they don't want to die, right? They want to build the afterlife and they want to be able to upload their minds to the afterlife. And people all over the world have that vision right now. And so there are lots of people working very hard on it. That's why I think it's inevitable, whatever the wisdom may be. And so that part of me is a bit pessimistic. But there's another part which is much more optimistic, uh, where I, I think that the world changes and anyone living in one particular time tends to look at the new changes with horror. But those changes come, everyone gets used to them, and they're not so horrible. And, you know, I often think if, uh, if you took someone from uh, classical Rome and, and told them the kinds of technologies that you would have today, uh, I imagine they would actually react with a lot of horror. You know, most of the countryside will be clear cut. The skies will be all smoggy and uh, we'll have instant communication all over the world. Maybe they'd like that one. I don't know. But so much of what goes on in the modern world would just horrify them morally and outrage them. Uh, I just think it's inevitable that uh, as technology moves, as culture changes, uh, people in any one time have trouble uh, dealing ethically or morally with what comes next. So, yeah. Yeah. I find moral problems with it, but I bet that you come back 300 years from now or 500 years from now and the people living at that time, they'll be okay with it. Right, right. Uh, Well, you've been really generous with your time already. Um, As we kind of approach a close, uh, I'm a non-scientist. I'm a non-neuroscientist. I was very much uh, influenced by your consciousness and the social brain, which was released in 2013. Uh, Your newest book came out last year. Um, you've been working on this theory for 10 years, over 10 years? Yes, about 10 years. Has there been any um, major shifts from uh, the social brain book to this book that I didn't um, that I didn't track or I didn't see? Has there been any major changes or has it just been refinements, ways of communicating? Um, I'm just asking how is your how has your theory developed over the last 10 years what's changed are you pessimistic about some things maybe you could just talk a little bit about that right the core theory is the same okay so it's a very simple underlying idea uh, and uh, the pieces were put in place 10 years ago the the, uh, the basis of it is the same uh, but as time goes on, yeah, we, we build on it. We learn more about it. Um, the new book is much more from an evolutionary perspective, which is essentially absent in the, in the first book. And uh, we're also beginning to understand better how these things are instantiated specifically in the brain and the networks in the brain and the particular patterns of activity in the brain. And we're just beginning to uh, look at um, building some kind of beginning artificial neural networks to uh, study these principles um, in uh, in that format as well. So things do move forward. Uh, you know, um, understanding consciousness in some ways may be like understanding evolution. The, uh, the original idea uh, dates back quite a ways. I mean, Darwin and his um, relative youth came up with this idea and then he wrote about it in 1860 and then it took until I don't know 19 
30 or 40 before the scientific community really began to understand the depth of it. And, and uh, now there's masses and masses of information about it. I think understanding consciousness, we have to think of it the same way. There are core principles that hopefully get put in place that are uh, not going to change a whole lot. I think more and more people are, are, are coming on to this mechanistic way of thinking away from the, uh, as I said, the magicalist way of thinking more toward the mechanistic way, really beginning to understand that this is a matter of an information processing device. There's no magic in it, but we can understand why people are so prone to believe in a magical mind. Uh, and, um, so there is, there's movement on that, um, I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting uh, pro progress. There's a lot of interesting experiments that have been done in the meantime as well and uh, more to come. But I always think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues, scientific issues, political, social, environmental issues in the world that people care about that are very, very important. Uh, and everyone thinks their own corner of the world is the most important thing in the universe. Uh, but I do actually think that, understanding consciousness well enough to engineer it and build it that's the watershed moment in our history as a species that changes who we are it changes everything whether good or bad it's the most transformative moment in our species and so at least people should know uh, what's going on people should know about this um scientific movements going on mm. yeah some people talk about it being like the number one you know copernican revolution where it'd be like a meta or super copernican revolution that if we understand consciousness like things will change forever in uh irreversible ways um what's been the biggest pushback um or or, the, or criticism yeah. the magicalists yeah others uh, many people have a vested interest in the mystery Mm. Right. They want to maintain the mystery. And just intuitively, most people have the well, everyone has these strong built in intuitions. Uh, we think of mind as a fundamentally magical, non-physical thing inside of us. And that intuition is very, very strong. And so a theory that says we don't actually have a non-physical magic, but this theory explains why the machine thinks it has that. And it's actually even beneficial for the machine to think it has that. There's adaptive uses for that, right? That kind of theory is very hard for people to uh, accept intuitively. And so that's the pushback. But more and more scientists look at that and they begin to realize, they can't help but realize, oh yeah, this is rational. You know, the magical approach is intuitive, but not very rational. <laughs> And at some point, you got to say to yourself, maybe my intuitions are the problem. <laughs> there is a rational explanation for what's going on here. And it's really interesting. And it's entirely scientifically approachable. Yeah, I, I have a I have a intimate um, knowledge of the sort of pushback that you probably get um, on your on your theory, because I, I did come from a very, you know, magical or very religious background where if you were to say the consciousness um, you know, which a lot of people equate with the soul, 
Uh, if you were to say that that's just a mechanism or, or what your brain tells you you have, that I mean, immediately that has all sorts of theological implications that don't sound so good. Yes. A, lot, a lot of our hopes and needs um, are attached to these intuitions. And so I understand uh, people not being on board. I mean, Darwin got all sorts of pushback um, because of his theory. Um, but also, you know, being influenced by the American pragmatists, they also get a lot of pushback as being materialists or how can you have a, a how could you have an ethics or a morality based on a lot of their theories and on a mechanistic understanding of all these things. Um, but you, you, you're not disparaging um, uh, consciousness. You're not disparaging our hopes and needs. And there's no reason why we shouldn't have a robust ethics or morality because of your no. theory, right? <laughs> That's right. All right. I just wanted to hear so, you say it. <laughs> yes. I, uh, uh, for, for about 10 years, I studied how the brain controls movement. And so I had to study the hand and the arm, and I had to learn all the muscles and all the bones. I forgot half the muscles in the hand, but there's lots of them. I had to learn all that in great detail. Once I understood how a hand worked, that did not mean that I could take a cleaver and cut my hand off because I don't need it anymore. Right. Right. Understanding it was not the same thing as explaining it away in a dismissive sense. And I think that's the same thing that's going on here with consciousness. No matter how well we may understand it intellectually, it's not going to make it go away. It's there and it's part of us. And it's a very important part. And that's part of what this theory says is it's actually a very adaptive part of who we are. The brain needs self-models and those self-models have to have uh, these um, kind of high-level schematic properties to them. We need those things. They're actually terribly important. So rather than dismissing it, it I, I see this theory as doing precisely the opposite. It explains the, t the importance, the crucial importance of consciousness. It explains uh, the uh, uh, intuitive appeal of um, spiritual thinking and why we tend to see uh, a, a mysterious energy like mind in ourselves and in others, why that's actually a, a, a really useful way uh, in some ways to think about the world. So it explains, uh, but it doesn't explain away. And I think that's a really crucial point that I hope people get from my books. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, right before we before we close, um, one of the motivations for my interest in your work has been from you know the perspective of of my religious background. Could you talk a little bit about what it you know we have talked about it. We talked about what it means to assign consciousness to ourselves and others and to our pets. Um, could you talk about God and um, consciousness out there? Um, because like you said, even though it explains why we assign consciousness to God, it doesn't explain it away necessarily. You're, it's, this isn't evidence that God does not exist necessarily. Um, I just wanted to hear you, you talk about that. And perhaps we could also talk a little bit about free will very quickly. Right. Oh, we left, we left the, uh, the really deep difficult subjects for yes. the, uh, the really <laughs> the quick last few comments. I, uh, so yes, I am an atheist. Uh, and by atheist, I mean literally uh, a theist. Like I, I don't think there's a God. I don't think there's a, a conscious being that created the universe or that guides the universe. I think consciousness evolved. Uh, I think it's a uh, part of the information processing uh, method, uh, uh, procedures in the brain, uh, and I think we as people 
attribute consciousness to ourselves and to others, and we attribute consciousness to the universe as a whole, and God, in this sense, is a, a construct of our social machinery. That's my perspective. Uh, in that perspective is uh, this recognition that spiritual thinking is not like so many, as you called them, new atheists. And so many new atheists think spiritual thinking and religion is some superstitious mistake or mistaken theory. Uh, people are just um, um, making an error somehow. Uh, my perspective is no, that's, that's, that's completely the wrong way to think about it. Uh, people evolved with these uh, intuitions built into us. We can't help them. Uh, and every, even the most atheistic of scientists out there has had experiences where they perceive uh, someone in another room. You're, at, you're, you're in your house at night and you hear the creepy sound and, and you just can't help imagining this other presence in the room. Everyone has had these kinds of experiences. And we've all experienced uh, perceiving mind in other people, right? We all have this built into us. And many people, probably a majority of people in the world, have experienced uh, perceiving some kind of uh, mind, disembodied mind around them. What I'm saying is this is built into us. It's, it's part of our social machinery. We can't help it. And it's not a mistake. I mean, evolution developed this because it's been incredibly useful to us as a species. It's the heart of how we uh, uh, interact with each other. It's the heart of how we uh, um, understand and predict. Like I said earlier, we uh, were able to engage in a dance, complex social dance with each other because we have this incredibly powerful theory of mind. We project consciousness on everything around us. And so I, I, I think that the whole spiritual way of thinking is uh, built into us. It's uh, evolutionary inheritance, and it's incredibly important to, how we, uh, uh, to who we are as people. And as a scientist, I think it should be possible to have an intellectual understanding that's in some way separate from our actual experience of living. And those two can be a little different from each other, but that's fine. Mm. There's no reason to to try to eliminate one <laughs> to save the other. Well, I appreciate that. And we can say free will for, for our next conversation. I think that's a, a good way to end. Um, okay. I, I really appreciate you've been really generous with your time, and I really appreciate you coming on. I had a really good time talking to you. Where can people find your work, and what's next for you? What What, what are you working on now? Well, uh, look me up online. You can find my work uh, on um, my my books on Amazon, and you can look up my webpage at uh, Princeton University, which lists all my uh, papers and all my books um, and other work as well. Uh, what 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 we're doing now in the lab basically is uh, continuing to study this theory experimentally in the lab, trying to understand the specific brain mechanisms behind this, uh, these self models, behind how the brain understands itself. And, uh, you know, a, a science, experimental science is a slow but hopefully steady process. So that's, that's what we're in the middle of. 
Well, anyone that that looks into the consciousness literature, um, so much of it is philosophical and sort of, you know, these kind of examples and stories that aren't really testable. And what is a benefit of your theory is that it is experimentally testable. So I love your practical perspective. I really enjoy your work and I look forward to everything that you have coming next. Um, I wish you the best. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh...